Welcome to Revere Assets, Your Money, with Danny Stewart. You never know how far the stock is going to go down. Tim Razor. Danny knows I'm a geek for all of this stuff. And Don Vandenborg. Telling it like it is. If you're seeking the best stock knowledge this side of Wall Street, you've come to the right place. I'm sorry, did I steal your stuff? No, you didn't steal any thunder. Who's handling this segment? (laughs) For the next hour, Danny, Tim, and Don will be talking investing. Investing is 90% psychological, and I love that. Trades. The market will usually overshoot to the downside and to the upside. And dumpster fires. Because it doesn't matter what you think or what I think, and it matters even less what Danny thinks. And now, here's your hosts... Danny, Tim, and Don. Before we start the show today, I would like to have a moment of silence and pay homage to Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's uh, right-hand man and investment guru who made Charlie Munger look good. All right, folks. Now that we got that out of the way, and by the way, some of his quotes, Charlie Munger, he was just a couple mo- a month shy of 100 years old, and he just didn't quite make the century mark, but I love that guy. He was so funny, and he had some great lines, and he actually opened Buffett's eyes to doing things other than just value investing. But anyway, he was a legend and an icon. Now, let's get right in into it. Now, folks, are ETFs to blame for extreme moves and market crashes? Is Alan Greenspan, was he the master of the language of perfect obfuscation? That's actually, he, Alan Greenspan gave himself that title and said that was, that was what the Fed, that his job was to kind of hide and obfuscate things so you didn't really know whether he was planning on raising or loosening. And the magic 2033 Social Security problem by John Malden, and he's talking about the, the, the fix. And you've heard of 20% plus annuity bonuses, even for fiduciary advisors. And then Business Insider, that is the traditional advisor brotherhood. Um, I just want to know where you're getting your market data, folks. And then Advisorpedia came out with a survey that's four months old. Is that relevant? What do we need to have a survey? For? And and they asked Fidelity or and Vanguard to comment. They didn't want to do it. Their dividend ETF is down big. But folks, the whole point is you need to figure out where you're getting your news sources because a lot of it represents the sell side, Wall Street, and they're trying to push you into certain products or certain funds rather than getting actual independent biased news. Now, um, and that is why it's important to educate your kids early. Educate them, start them with the Roth when they're in high school. All they have to have is a little bit of earned income. You can pay them to do a few odd jobs. At the very least, you can open up a Roth and just put it 500 or 1,000 bucks in there, even $100 just to get that five-year rules start, the five-year rule clicking so they can take it out tax-free after five years. And then later when they start saving or for a house or whatever, it can be there. But it's very important. But... I really want to get right to the markets because things have changed. And, and Don actually did a great 
interview this morning, uh, a radio interview, audio only, with Chuck Jaffe of Money Show Live, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about that. But I want to go to the mailbag and tie this in because I got a a a email asking. This is from a guy that listens, a loyal listener. He's a uh, actually he was a professor, I think, at finance college. But anyway. He actually had a question for his nephew, who works for the government, has got a 403B. Guess what they're pitching him inside the 403B that's already tax deferred, you guessed it, an indexed annuity. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about a few other things, and we're going to tie in the market and the market where we are in time and space and actually... Um, uh, uh, Revere strategy, how we do things, our processes and procedures all together. So I'm going to start with the mailbag and then it'll tie into Revere. Okay. Before we get to the actual mailbag, I want to talk about reversion to the mean because we talk about that. Don talks about that a lot on his videos. We talk about that. And it really means you're just pulling back to the average. And I had a few questions around that, but I want to make sure people understand Reversion to the mean doesn't always mean that price comes down, meaning if the stock's extend, theoretically extended, meaning it's above the mean, it can pull back down to the mean. Or if it continues higher, it can actually pull the mean up. So there's actually two ways the reversion can happen. Price can go down or the mean can get pulled up if that stock's strong enough. I mean, that's actually what happens with moving averages as well. So I just wanted to clarify that. Okay. Um, um, then I got a mailbag. This was uh, 1130 actually today by JJ. Why do you sometimes buy, why do you buy something at a 52-week high, then if a stock drops a few percent, sell it? Please clarify. And I answered him. I said, we explain all of these moves in our nightly video. By the way, you can go. We're free. We won't spam you. But we do a daily, a nightly video every night the market's open. Donda, and you can go check that out. We explain what I do. We talk about our moves. Anyway, we explain all these moves in our nightly videos. But to answer your question, in an uptrending market, you want to buy into strength, not bottom fish. Remember, PEs are earned. If a company has a really low PE, that oftentimes, most of the time, means they're a dog and they earn that PE by doing poorly, and therefore the stock sold off. So now, now it's sold off, why won't you buy? But it could take years to recover, and some may not ever recover. So you wanna focus on the strongest companies. These companies could go bankrupt, they may not recover. Wall Street doesn't tell you that part, it just wants you to direct the money where the money isn't flowing for support. What I'm saying, folks, is they need liquidity in these other stocks. They don't need liquidity in Tesla or Apple. There's plenty of liquidity. They want you to go elsewhere. Anyway, thus we buy into strength, but if the stock reverses, then we sell quickly. We do not hold to avoid big losses. It is the big losses that kill you, not the small paper cuts. So we will get a few small losses, but then you'll get a few stocks that really run and it will cover all the paper cuts and then gains on top of that. But you won't have the big drawdowns of traditional portfolios that scare you out of your strategy. 
It's a law of large numbers. And if I knew which stock was it really going to break out and run and which one was going to be a false breakout, I would simply just buy those. Now, folks, that is the beauty of, of uh, hindsight 2020. But without hindsight, you got to have some rules. So we're going to get into that again. And then I'm going to go over uh, one more. Uh, this is thank you so much for the phone call and asking me additional questions and giving me some ideas. Looking to try to help my nephew, 45, spouse, 39, two daughters. Just started working a few years ago with the FD, federal government, FDA. Uh, he's been working for a company the Institute for Financial Awareness that has never heard of before, rightly a bit skeptical. They're pitching indexed annuities, suggesting, and and he, the this nephew, said it seemed too good to be true. Folks, remember what your parents always told you? If it seems too good to be true, probably is. Anyway, I'm not very, I'm just not very familiar with annuities. I've stayed away from them myself. I work for the IRS, okay, pension. Um, um, I see the brochures, they provided big names like Schiller and Siegel, which make it seem great. I appreciate any help or education on these annuities. I know you were familiar with annuities and passionate and educated about anyone that listened. My answer, um, um, oh, oh, this is part of the comment that they had. Uh, they sound good. Oh, yeah. So he's explaining the index annuity, that what they told him. They said, index annuity, if, my, if, if the stock market goes up, my return goes up. If the index goes down, my return is zero, meaning I never lose any money. Any pitfalls to indexed annuities? My answer I will discuss on the show along, uh, along uh, with, uh, you know, the comments. But... The big selling pitch, folks, is that you get most of the gains, but none of the losses. While it's true you get none of the losses, you don't get most of the gains. In fact, what these indexed annuities do is they either have a cap rate. So if the market goes up 20%, you get capped at 8 or 10 or possibly even 12 Okay, plus their internal ongoing fee. The, normally, the mortality expenses, the M&E expenses on these annuities, because they're expensive to, to, to do the index annuities, are one and a half, two percent, two and a half percent. Some are even higher. So if you're capped at 10, you get 10 minus the M&E expense. So you're going to get around nine. Okay, market's up 20, you get nine. Zero, next year the market goes down, you got zero. That's good, you had a win. Then the market has maybe a 6% return. You get that minus the M&E. When you average those string of returns together, you get about 4.5%. Okay? Now. Dan, I think you're assuming everybody knows what M&E is. Oh, mortality expenses. Excuse me. Uh, an annuity actually is just a, a life insurance policy with no death benefit. People also don't know that. So really, when we talk about mortality and expenses, there is no mortality because there's not a death benefit, not a life insurance death benefit. If you die, it's really just the expenses. So I should have said the expenses. Good. Thank you, Don, for correcting me. Um, but those expenses are internal, the marketing expenses, the cost to, to actually do it because they use options and different, uh, uh, you know, complex things to structure these things. But they're giving you a promise to pay a return based on the S&P or some index. But then they cap it. Or they do monthly averaging. So you get January's return point to point, February's return point to point, March, April, and you get 12 of them, and then you add them all together and divide by 12. Well, that sounds pretty uh, fair. 
on the surface. It sounds kind of equitable. Folks, mathematically, that cuts the return in half. It makes it less, okay? So they can, ha or they can drop the participation rate. I used to be, when they first came out with these in like 2000, I was one of the big, biggest producers because I thought they were great. And you got a 90% participation rate. But in the fine print, they had the option to drop it way down. And I called and I said, what is this? Because I read the contract. I said, oh, we'll never do that. Don't worry about it. So we did it. Very next year, they dropped it all way down to like 35 40%. My clients were upset. I said, never again. I've never pushed them again. And everybody I talked to that has already owned them is complaining and wants to get out of them. I don't know anybody that's cheerleading about how excited they are about their indexed annuity. It's just a fixed annuity, but the interest crediting is based on some index and then they cut it in half and then they charge management fees. Anyway, it's expensive. It's not good. And by the way, if you're really considering doing an annuity at this stage, probably just a plain old fixed annuity because now you have real interest rates at five and a half, six percent, you can actually get a, a, a decent rate. Now, I wouldn't do it in IRA and I wouldn't do it in a, a 401k or 403b because that's already tax deferred. You could buy, you could buy some, you could do some other avenue, okay? So I would only do that with after-tax money. By the way, most annuities are stuck in IRAs. You know why? That's where the money is. So to an annuity salesman, everything, the solution, he's, it's the nail, he's the hammer. Everything looks like an annuity, okay? They pitch the tax-deferred growth, folks, and if it's an IRA, it's already tax-deferred. That's meaningless, doesn't mean anything. So in any event, I digress. Um, that's why I don't like them. They're just, they're just, they're just better ways to do it, in my opinion. Now, here's the other thing that people don't realize, and you hear these on, on the radio. You go by and hear, oh, a 20% bonus. You get 20, 25% bonus on, on, on the money. Folks, it's not a 20% bonus. It's a lie. It's your own money back. It's your own money back with a slightly higher return. So here's the real transaction. You give an insurance company $300,000, $500,000, you give them a big, and then they look at your health and your family and your genetics, and they say, based on your life expectancy, we can pay you $2,500 a month, right? And so that's what they give you. Now, if you get hit by a bus, that whole $300,000 goes away. You have exchanged your big lump sum for, I'm talking about a life annuity now, you can do some certain other things, but for this one, you give, you give that lump sum away for an income stream, okay? So if you're only three months in that income stream and you get hit by a bus, that whole 300,000 goes away. But annuities have two phases, the accumulation phase where you save money and have it grow tax deferred, and then the, district, the, the, the annuitization phase where they annuitize it and give you income stream for life, okay? When, but in order to get that 20 or 25% bonus, you've actually got to annuitize it with them and get that income stream for life. So it's like the Hotel California. You can check out, check in, but you can never leave. So rather than you getting maybe a 4.2, 4.3% return on your money, 
they're giving you maybe a 4.8 or 5.2% return on your money. That's where the 20% bonus, that's how they're calculating, that's how they're backing in to that 20% bonus. They're taking the present value and they're giving you a little bit of money, but it's paid out and amortized over the next 30 years or whatever your life expectancy is. It's your own money. And then they go invest it and make an average of 8, 10% and make a spread on your money. So when they talk, when any advisor tells you it's a 20% bonus, Tell them to call me so I can explain the real transaction to them. All right. I've had enough about the traditional advisor brotherhood that is Wall Street. Let's talk about real strategy, real market data, and buy side research, not sell side, not Wall Street, not the traditional advisor brotherhood, but let's talk about real strategy. So I want to go back to this first email I read. Why sometimes, why are you buying stocks at 52-week highs instead of buying stocks with, quote, lower PEs? Bill O'Neill, the founder of IBD's famous words were, you want to buy stocks high and sell higher. And with that, Don, I'll give it to you. Oh, how did your interview go? You got to tell us that, too. Yeah, it went uh, very well. Uh we didn't talk a lot of detail on what's going on in the market. We were, uh, but it gave us, uh, gave me an opportunity to really talk about our process here at Revere. He, uh, Chuck has a lot of uh, typical mutual fund strategists on, and you know, they, you hear, I think all the time, every here, I hate, every time I hear somebody say, I think I just shudder because it doesn't matter what anybody thinks the market's going to do what the market's going to do. Um, having a thesis is one thing, getting price confirmation is another, and that's what we insist on uh, at Revere. So good interview. We'll put it out there on the um, on YouTube when uh, when I get a copy of it. It should be published tomorrow on Friday. <laughs> so we're filming we're filming this today at uh, 1:30 p.m. Eastern time. And uh, if you watch the videos, I've, I'm always going to be referencing the videos because there's so much that happens on the market on a day-to-day -day basis, and we're constantly following up on uh, what happened, our expectation of what we want to see happen, and what would change in the market to change our expectations. So the the 20th here. Uh, was a, a breakout that was on 1120. And then we went into a giant uh, trading range. And I'm looking at the S&P 500 mm -hmm. here. Uh, on Wednesday morning, we gapped up above that trading range, but promptly failed. So what we have now is very obviously a failed breakout. So the question is, are we just going to go back into the consolidation that we've been uh, in or is the dreaded saying from failed moves come fast moves in the opposite direction going to rear its head? And that's what we have to be looking for. This 4540 area here on the S&P 500, we're trading basically right there now. We've poked under it uh, a couple times today, but it's holding and it's important that it holds. On the other hand, if you go to the NASDAQ 100, uh, you can also see the breakout, but you can also see the failure of that range so on the nasdaq 100 we broke out we came back into the range and now we broke through uh the meat of the range there's still an extended part of the range down here that we're trying to hold and it's critical that we do hold that uh and what's what's really happening is we're seeing a bunch of rotation in the market the big seven the magnificent seven uh, they have led the market higher this year 
there's some relative weakness going on in those names. It's subtle, but it's there. You can see the stack 100 relative strength line, which kind of led this most recent wave up, taking a break for a little bit. Uh, we've seen negative reversals on all seven of the big seven stocks. And you can see breaking the eight-day exponential moving average today on the 100. Uh, that's the first short-term level that we're testing. This We've had 20 days above it, so it's not surprising that it's happening. Uh, we've also had 20 days above the 21-day exponential moving average. And the question is, uh, are we going to visit that? And after you have such a strong run, you get acclimated to the market going up. These pullbacks feel worse than they actually are. But if you look at, so you see we broke the ADMA on the um, NASDAQ 100. We're holding it on the S&P 500. And if you look at the equal weighted S&P 500, we're breaking higher. So this is a very clear indication of the rotation that we're seeing out of the big tech names and into uh, some other sectors. And uh, you can see the relative strength line going at almost a 45 degree angle here on the equal weighted. This is very good news because it's good for breadth. What we're seeing is just, we're seeing money rotate. We're not seeing money come out of the market. Uh, it's a positive sign. Uh, but it does mean if you were tech heavy, you're going to see a little bit of a pullback, and we are seeing that. We've trimmed a bunch of our names over the last two days uh, leading into this because it wasn't altogether unexpected. Uh, would have preferred clearly to see yesterday's breakout on the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ 100 hold, but we come into every day with uh, a plan for either direction. We have a plan for the market up, the market going sideways, and the market going down. And when you see a failed breakout like that, uh, it's time to get just a little bit more defensive, and that's what we've been doing over the last couple of days. So uh, the S&P 500 holding the ADMA, 8EMA, is good. We are 1.6% above the 21-day exponential moving average, and it wouldn't surprise me to see us go a little bit sideways to down on the S&P, catch up with the 21-day exponential moving average, and then uh, bounce off of that and go higher because typically when you come back and visit it for the first time or close to it, uh, you bounce and go higher. So whether we touch it or just get in the vicinity of it uh, is yet to be seen. But where we're sitting right now, we're seeing underperformance in the big eight that's carrying through the NASDAQ 100. It's putting, it's capping the uh, progress on the S&P 500, but it's uh, the the equal weighted S&P 500 is outperforming the S&P 500. We saw this uh, a lot at the end of last year and everybody was cheering this because the big seven stocks were getting sold off uh, for people taking tax losses through the fourth quarter of 2022. Uh, and then they were bought hard in 2023, the typical January effect. But uh, this is good news to see this broadening out. Uh, the small caps, what we really wanna see they're fighting against this black line, the 200-day moving average. We failed twice in the last two weeks there. We challenged that level again today and failed. We want to see, very plain and simple, uh, the NASDAQ 100 get above uh, 180.50 and stay there. We're at 179.50 right now, so less than a half of a percent away from that level. Uh, that'll, that will indicate increased breadth. It'll indicate rotation again from big, more toward mid and small. Here's the, here's the mid cap index. This has been uh, showing some relative strength also above 
the 200 day moving average, we need the slope of this line to start turning up to give us more confidence, but uh, it's at the top of the range, not the bottom of the range of this recent tight range, which is what we've been seeing on the NASDAQ 100 and the S&P 500 because of the weakness of those big seven stocks. So what I said in last night's video is the big seven giveth, but the big seven taketh away as well. And we're seeing the taketh away part of that and just have to be prepared for it. Monitor the relative strength, see what's working and what's not working and rotate accordingly. And that's what we've been doing over the last couple of days. All right. Well, that's 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 a very good synopsis. I appreciate that. So um, um, you are now so you got once the market pulls back a little bit, you get defensive. You also look at the rotation. So now you move, you, you peel off some tech names. Are you moving into some of the other names or are you just going to what's the plan? I mean, are you trying to rotate into other sectors or are you just raising cash? We're 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 waiting for the pullback to stop. Okay. Right now. We so we're, we've raised some cash and we've got a list of our best names ready to put money to work into. Uh, CrowdStrike is one that we trimmed a little bit into earnings. It had a great earnings reaction and it's not giving that move up at all. We bought Snow today that had a good earnings reaction and it's holding up while the market's pulling back today. Uh, PDD, Pindwadwa, the Timu website is very popular in the US. We bought that earnings gap up recently and that's holding well. So really you use the pullback to isolate strength. And those are, the expectation is that if the market stops going down and turns and money starts flowing, it'll be into these names that held up the best. And those are the ones that we'll be targeting. And listen, that is a very good uh, point so folks, everybody assumes because people want to use their memory. They want they don't want to research and do work. They just want to try to have it simple. So whatever did the best, the last rally or the last bull market, they assume that's going to be what rallies this bull market. And it may not be. It probably most stocks will go through three or four bull market cycles before they fall out of favor. You know, you'll have app whatever. But like in the 90s, you had Cisco Systems. It was a darling of Wall Street all through the 90s. In the 2000s, it turned into a dog. Wachovia went bankrupt. Okay, lots of a few other companies went bankrupt. But a lot of those companies that that were the leader, Dell, Dell. Dell even had to be delisted. Michael Dell had to buy him back. And then they, think about Microsoft. Microsoft was dead money for 15, 16 years. And then they put uh, the new CEO in Dell, and he, he's turned that thing around and he's, and Microsoft is now a leading stock again. So don't just assume you can go back into the old stock you were in. That's why we constantly upgrade our watch list each time because you've got to earn the right to be on the watch list. So just like a PE is earned, you got to earn the right to be on the watch list. All right, Don, what do the uh, guys got for us? Let's uh, go to Mike. He's going to talk about treasury yields. Okay. Just real quick before, before I get into my section, I wanted to mention a name that I'd spoken about a few months ago that is setting up and looks pretty good. And that's Domino's Pizza, DPZ. That chart, as I said, great company. You want to look for amazing companies with good uh, capital allocation. And this one's setting up. So just wanted to put it back on everyone's radar, a name to watch. That group has also been pretty strong with Chipotle doing really well and 
some other restaurant names. So keep, keep an eye out on that one. Definitely got it on my watch list. And now transitioning to today's podcast. So something else I've been speaking about quite a bit is interest rates. And I felt it was important to maybe give some definitions to help the public and our viewers understand a little better what is really going on. And without, without the definitions, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to even keep track and understand everything that the Fed's doing and what we're talking about. So I want to lay the foundation and the groundwork a little bit. So to begin with, interest rates. What are interest rates? You may have heard of interest rates as the price of money, but what I believe is a better definition is really the price of time. And the reason I say that is because time is scarce, time has value, and interest is the time value of your money. So the way you should think about interest rates is the price of time. And there's two major forces that work together to engineer an economy where growth is stable and positive and inflation is stable and low. And those two forces, you may have heard of these words before, are monetary policy and fiscal policy. So what does that mean? Monetary policy is your central banks. So monetary policy focuses what they control is interest rates and the money supply. And then the fiscal policy, which is the government, controls spending and taxation. And if you think of the monetary and fiscal policy, at the moment, they're currently functioning as a sort of tug of war where the fiscal side, the government keeps spending like drunken sailors. And then the monetary side, the central banks are trying to reel that in and slow down the economy because there's too much spending going on. So they got to raise interest rates to slow that down. Otherwise things can really overheat. But oftentimes when there's a recession, like in 08, they work together and the, the government really pumps a lot of money and spends a lot and the central bank lowers rates. So it just depends where you are in the cycle. And now something else you may have heard of in this chart is, is something called the yield curve. Sorry, the, the other chart that was just up is, is something called the yield curve. Now, what does the yield curve mean? The yield curve, as you can see here, is a chart of all of the different rates starting from the overnight rate, which is your, your zero to one month overnight rate, one day rate, all the way to 30 years. And then that chart, what it does is it plots the different interest rate for every term, for every period. So you've got, you've got bills and notes that expire, that mature in, in a year. What the rate you're paying for that is going to be different to the rate that you're paying or willing to, to accept for a 30 year period. So overnight rates, what does that mean? That's any, that, that's a, Sorry, overnight rates to one year is a term that's called the money market. So when you have money market funds and these money market securities, what you're doing, what these funds do is they own these, these treasuries that have a maturity at issuance of a maximum of one year. So it's got to be one year and below. That's all they hold in, in money market uh, funds. And then anything longer than one year is called the capital market. So what the Fed does when you hear the Fed raised interest rates, the FOMC, the Fed funds rate, what that is, is that's the overnight rate. And then that rate, so those are all money market rates that are most affected by that overnight rate. 
And then it trickles out along the curve with the largest effects felt in that one year period, that one year of rates, the money market. Then you've got other terms like T-bills and T-bills are those money market securities. So anything up to one year, T-notes to be specific, you may have heard T-notes, T-bills, bonds, all used interchangeably. But when you're talking about treasuries, T-notes are any securities that have a term of between two and 10 years. And this is all at issuance. So when they're, they're actually issued, what's the term of those, those notes? And then anything beyond that is a T-bond. So when you hear 10-year bonds, 30-year bonds, 20-year auction, all these things, those are all bonds. Okay. So here on the yield curve, you've got all of those different terms plotted. And in a normal, the, the normal state of affairs, you would expect that as you go out, because you have this price of time, as you go out further along the curve, and there's more and more time until you're going to collect all of your coupons, the 30-year rate should be above the one-month rate because the 30-year rate is composed of these different shorter-term rates that then mature and you roll them over and roll them over and roll them over. And in a normal state of affairs, the trend should be up and to the right. Now with this curve here, you can see it's something called inverted. And what inverted means is that these shorter-term rates are above the longer-term rates. and I can get into detail as to why that is. It's something called in, in the, the real rate. So there, there's something called the Fisher effect, which is basically the market wants a return on their money that's fairly stable over time. And this is something called the real rate. And the reason why there's a change in something called the nominal rate, which is different to the real rate, right? So the nominal rate is that change in expected inflation. So what you have with the nominal rate is your real rate plus the inflation expectation. So the market demands a real return and wants their purchasing power preserved. So for example, let's say the real rate demanded by the market is 2%, and that's fairly consistent over time. The market is happy with 2% real return on their money. If expected inflation is 0%, the interest rate, the nominal rate will be 2% because you don't have to factor in that inflation expectation. But where things get tricky, and especially as you go along the yield curve and further out and beyond things that, that the central bank can control is the uncertainty around inflation expectations. And that's something called term premium. So there's a lot of different reasons why the yield curve could be inverted. But what that's showing is that that nominal rate longer out in the future, perhaps you've got lower inflation expectations and the greatest cure to inflation is a recession. So the market, when the curve's inverted, could be pricing in a recession and thinking that in the future, the Fed will start cutting rates. And as they cut rates, then the mechanics of that is it, that trickles along the curve. So further on, you're going to price all of that in. I can make a longer video explaining all of the different scenarios and what it means, but that's uh, th those are the definitions that I think are really important to, to first get an understanding of, to then figure out what else is going on. And all of this ties into equity valuations. Everything at the end of the day, everything in the market really comes down to interest rates. That's the most important thing. And something else that affects is commodities like gold. 
And that segues perfectly into what I believe Ted is going to talk about, which is what's going on with gold. So back well, back to Dan or Ted. Yeah, th th thanks, Mike. So that, uh, Mike, you just came up with the title of, or the headline of this week's podcast, The Price of Time. I love that. It's it's the because it's the cost of money, but you're right. It's the cost of time. Here's the problem with an inverted yield curve. Now it skews or it distorts economic reality because it people normally the normal state, like Mike said, it's supposed to be uh, uh, positive sloping from bottom left, like at the bottom the, the the origin in the first quadrant and it should be sloping up and to the right because 20 years of risk is a lot scarier than six months of risk there's a lot more uncertainty when interest rates for short term or, th or three four five six months are high now it costs money for companies to raise money to, because if why would I buy a dividend stock? By the way, dividend stocks got creamed. Now you're finally starting to see a little bit of rotation back into them. That's what Don was talking about. It's been the magnificent seven in technology for the early part of this year in the rally while dividend stocks have been struggling. That's because people don't want dividend stocks. If they can get a, a treasury bill with no risk that's going to pay them 5.5% and their dividend's only 4 why take the risk that your stock can go down? There's no point if you're just looking for income. As far as the futures in gold, the carrying costs, futures, they have to pay little interest to hold that futures contract. It makes gold futures or all futures more expensive. So when short-term rates are high, it slows the economy down and it causes friction. All right, that was great, uh, Mike. Thanks. Uh, Don, you want to send it over to Ted? Yeah, Ted's going to talk about gold. Yep. So... Gold, currently, we're at a pretty big critical juncture here. Don, if you to bring up GLD and then go on a monthly chart, I just first want to zoom out and take a higher level perspective on gold here. And so for the last decade, we've pretty much been consolidating and going sideways. We formed a 10-year cup with handle, which is honestly unseen before. Um, if you go on a weekly, Don, zoom in a little bit. We can see that there's a cup with handle within a cup with handle. And another perspective you can take is that we see an inverse head and shoulders. So why are we at a critical juncture? If you were to look just to the left, we've had three peaks off this. This um, On GLD, it's 190 through 195 area. And then the gold spot price, it's about 2075 to 2090 area. And every time we've tested this level, we've sharply rejected it. So the first peak all the way to the left was COVID. That was sparked by COVID. The middle peak, um, second to the left, that was the Ukraine war in early 2022. It peaked at 193.3, about 2079 on gold spot. This one, the second from the right, was this earlier this year's banking crisis. We also sharply rejected there. And so now this current situation, how I see it is that the prior, the prior three peaks was catalyzed by a clear distinguished event. And this time around, you can't really quite point out exactly what this new uptrend may be caused by. Um, some investors may think there might be excessive, unsustainable government debt. Uh, some, yeah. some say that banks are underexposed to gold in their allocations. Uh, some other investors may fear recession after the Fed jacked up interest rates from zero to 5% in one of the fastest hiking cycles of all time. And so it's unclear to see, 
it's, it's unclear to what is catalyzing this move, but so far we're testing this level and actually not rejecting it sharply. We're, we're starting to absorb the supply here around 2075 to 2090 on the spot price um, in this 190, 195 on this GLD chart. And so it is, it's gonna be interesting to see how this plays out in the next few weeks and months, because if we do break out of this level above 2090, it is clear skies, gold is the new all-time high out of this 10-year base. And as the maxim goes, the bigger the base, the higher in the space. And so gold hasn't moved for the last decade and it really breaks out. Perhaps this is time for gold to take the baton. And back to what Dan was saying, is protection exposed in anything else besides tech and equities? Um, we have caught part of this recent move with Nugget, uh, the leverage ETF of the gold miners. Um, and there's, there are many gold miners acting well. Silver is starting to catch up too. And this brings me back to another point that this year we, we've seen uranium heat up. We've seen gold heat up. Silver, copper is going as well, even steel. So it seems like these, these precious metals um, and these metals are starting to form a theme this year. And so now if you go to the daily chart, just to zoom in even further, you've, you've seen... This recent move started up with a gap up pocket pivot on October 13th. And if you want to review what a pocket pivot is, the last podcast I actually discussed the definition of pocket pivot and gave a couple examples on that. So if you're interested, you can go and check that podcast out. And then it was fall and back to this move, it was followed by another gap up pocket pivot on October 18th. And if you just look at the volume, there were, there were many skyscrapers of blue bars, and many of those were pocket pivots, including some of these last few days. And so right now, it, gold is displaying a lot of power. There's clear institutional accumulation. And so we just have to see what happens at this critical juncture. All right, Ted, I appreciate it. Uh, uh, by the way, have you done a, a short, a video short on the pocket pivot? No, I have not. But why I don't why don't why don't you do one on that, and then we'll hang it on the YouTube okay. channel. Sounds good. All right. All right now, now, by the way, before we go off that topic, that's his technical analysis. Does fundamental confirm it? Well, folks, from a from a big picture, ten thousand foot level, looking down, the money the the government is spending money like a drunken sailor. They're printing till the cows come home, like Mike said. That should be bullish, theoretically, for gold, commodities, hard assets, real assets, okay? That's one thing. If you think it's geopolitical, gold is actually a better fear indicator than it is inflationary. So in 2008, during the economic crisis, that wasn't inflationary. That was deflation. That was crash. The only two sectors that went up, treasury bonds and gold, they were positively correlated. Did you know in the 30s, the government confiscated our gold. They took it from us at 17 and a half, but then sold it on the open market for $35 an ounce, making 100% on their money over a few years. That doesn't sound like gold did bad during deflationary time. Silver made 14.5% annualized over eight years during the 30s. Gold miners were the, actually, you could still own gold miners, you just couldn't hold the gold. They made 70, 80% annualized. They were the, by far the biggest performers. And that was during the depression. So they teach in college at the hollow grounds of Harvard 
that deflation is bad for gold. But if you look at the charts of when we had deflationary periods, not so much. So the theory does not bear out in price. That's why we always say here at Revere, price is truth. All right, Don, let's see what Connor has. Connor here today? Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And did you say hollow grounds or hallowed Hallow, grounds? Hallow or was grounds. That a, or was that a Freudian oh, slip, Oh, maybe? you're right. That was, yeah, it should have been hollowed. Well, I won't say that on the air. I was going to say something dirty. I, I dislike Harvard greatly. Really, Dan? Especially after all the anti-Semitic stuff they did the last few weeks, but I digress. I love Ackman. I'm glad Ackman came out and, and doxed those MBAs. Anyway, not to get too much. Connor. Yeah. Connor Financials, yeah. take it away. That's right. So, yeah, a bit of a character change in regionals and financials that took place this week. And so this is the chart of KRE. And as you can see, for the first time in a long time, it's getting back above this 200-day moving average. Um, the whole Silicon Valley thing took all these individual names and this sector down, uh, plus combination of rising rates. But as rates have been coming down, uh, KRE's really trying to put a bottom here. It's got back above the 200-day moving average yesterday. And as you can see, it, it's gone sideways for quite some time. So bottoms take time. And if you're trying to catch the knife, it's, it's usually not going to work. And this is kind of exactly what you want to see. Um, it fits back to stage analysis that we've talked about on the podcast before. But you want to see just kind of price go sideways. This is a clear stage one. So if it can break out above, you know, $50 and the 200-day starts to slope up, that could provide some fuel and momentum for regional banks. So this is good to see. And, you know, there's always that old saying on Wall Street, there's no bull market without the participation of banks or financials. And this is a good to see. And it also fits that narrative that there's rotation going on into different areas of the market and sectors. And then if, yeah, KB, you can pull up the KBE chart as well. This is another bank index ETF, and this looks very similar. I mean, this one's been trading above the 200-day moving average a little bit longer. And as you can see, that RS line, that got back above the 21-day. And it is lagging, but banks, you expect them to lag. Um, but that RS line is trying to break out a bit here as well, which is good to see. Now, would you, would, so you Hunter, at, would, would you, Connor, would you consider that a cup and handle or is that too broken? You see the right side no, there? You, the left? Yeah, you could say that. Um, yeah, okay. how Don drew it out. Okay. Usually, I would say cup and handles are going to be more powerful if the stock's been trending that, up. That, that, that looks more like a gravy boat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The old gravy boat and handle. All right. Uh, we, we need to have some of our own. We need to come up with some of our own patterns. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, if you go to Western Alliance, WAL, this is a name in the carry. Um, another name that got killed with uh, the Silicon Valley thing. And now this has formed a really nice base and it's um, 
it's gone sideways for quite some time. That 200-day moving average is flattening out, trying to hook back up. Um, so it's good to see some individual names uh, showing that they look like they've tried to bottom and, and starting to move out and just see new names, new sectors working, which is good. And if when we look at XLF, this is the financials. This has been on a tear, um, showing a lot more strength in regional banks. This had quite a shake um, when Barron's said buy banks and after it shook all those late, all those people out. Now it's been trending really nicely. It broke back above the long-term moving average and it's just been trending to the upside really nice. And when you look at some of the big weights uh, like Berkshire Hathaway, that's a huge holding here. And so that chart's gonna look quite similar. It's, it's acting well. Um, and some other big banks as well. Uh, JP Morgan has been strong. It went down on earnings a bit, but it's rallied back up after that shake. And then another one that's kind of coming out of a bull flag today is Goldman Sachs. That one looks pretty strong as well. The evil Goldman so Sachs. It's, yeah, it, yeah, right? So yeah, it's, it's good to see financials, regional banks looking better. Um, and it's definitely a character change that, that we haven't seen. So continue to watch this area of the market to, to see if it wants to continue higher and showing strength. And, and folks, listen, uh, one thing I like to say is, you know, with, with the fundamentals, so the technicals are setting up for gold and the commodities, right? And have been. And the fundamentals tie in with that and make a, a good argument. With the banks, however, it's a little bit more fuzzy because with the inverted yield curve, their expenses, their pay they got to pay for depositors is higher. It costs them a lot more in their revenues because their loan demand has gone down and they got to charge lower rates. They actually have a, running losses. They're having trouble uh, in this environment. So fundamentally, the banks are, don't look as good like is the commodities. So the fundamental and the technical kind of are, are in opposition, whereas with gold, they line up better. Normally, you want the fundamentals and technicals to line up together. But if they don't, we're going to err on the side of caution. We'll use technical rules to sell. So, Don, you want to add anything on to that? No, that's a very important point, though. We buy on technicals and fundamentals, but we sell only on technicals because the fundamentals will always look best at the top and will look questionable when when a, a it's time to buy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. When it's time, yeah. Listen, when by the way, so I actually I put a bunch of articles up on the, uh, you know, on the thing that I, I just don't want to time to go into. And you know, one of them was funny. It was from Advisor PD and the and the person saying, "Oh, we're going to have a pullback and then we're going to have a Santa Claus rally." And I thought, "Oh, well, if it's that easy, we can just sell now and Don, and we'll just buy the dip and go home. We're done." For the end of the year, we don't have to do anything. So I was got really skeptical, and then I got a little bit upset. So I went and actually, and the article, in fairness, he had a couple technical things, and he had a few things in there, and I, I actually kind of liked some of the things he said. I don't agree with all of it by any means, but here are a couple bullet points I loved. Fundamentals and economics drive long-term investment decisions. Greed and fear drive short-term trading. Know what type of investor you are and determine the basis of your strategy. Uh, uh, I don't agree with this part. He said market timing is impossible. I think it's very difficult. He, but he said managing risk exposure is logical and 
possible. I agree with that 100%. Invest, investments is about discipline and patience. Lacking either one can be destructive. Uh, there is, oh my God, I love this one. We need to put this on the website. There is no value in daily media commentary, unless it's Revere Asset. By side only research. Turn off the television and save yourself mental capital. God, I love that one. I'm going to frame that on my wall. Uh, investing is no different than gambling. Both are guesses about future outcomes based on probabilities. The winner is the one who knows when to fold and who know when to go all in. No investment strategy. There's another one. No investment strategy works all the time. The trick is knowing the difference between a bad strat investment strategy and one that is temporarily out of favor. That is classic. Folks, you got to define the market you're in. you got to figure out the market you're in and then adjust your strategy accordingly. So like, and I'll let Don clean this up. If I, he can put me his damn interpreter on, it probably won't be necessary. Um, when, 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 when we're in a tough market and it's a bearish market, we're going to have fewer positions and our position sizes are going to be smaller. We're going to take less risk each time. And the stock's really going to have to prove itself and will leg in more judiciously. When we're in a strong uptrend and things are working better, we feel more confident getting in earlier and we can adjust our position size. You can also adjust uh, uh, how much room, how much leash you're going to give the stock. So that actually is very good. Now, he ruins the entire, all of those bullet points with his next line. While anxiously anticipating, that means like forecasting, anticipating, while anxiously anticipating the arrival of Santa Claus rally, we must remember the lessons taught in 2018, meaning sell-off. Nothing is guaranteed. Anyway, folks, if you like what you heard, please tell a friend, tell a neighbor, we do very little marketing or advertising. It's most, almost all by word of mouth. You can just send them to revereasset.com up in the right-hand corner. There's a subscribe button. You can put your name and email address in, and this podcast will go in right in your inbox the moment, uh, well, the next day normally. But if you subscribe to YouTube, right, and just uh, uh, Google Revere Asset. That's it. Just Revere Asset and hit subscribe. You'll have this podcast the moment Zach posted on YouTube, which would probably be an hour from now. Right now, it's roughly a little bit after one central. This will be out before the close. Then additionally, we do a daily market insight video. It's called Tomorrow's Insights. What we appear to be setting up and the probabilities for tomorrow's market. We do that every evening after the close when the market's open, and that's about a 10, 15-minute, well, Don's being a little longer sometimes, gets inspired, maybe 20-minute video. We talk about the short, midterm, long-term uh, uh, timeframes of the major indices, and then we actually talk about stocks. We're either bird-dogging and tracking stocks on our watch list and actual moves we made in our portfolio. We are the most transparent advisor that I know of, um, and you can, and, 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 and by the way, next to the subscribe button is a contact us button. You can send us an email and ask for a complimentary portfolio review, a topic you want to talk on the show or a stock you want discussed or whatever tickles your boat. Um, you can also uh, always, always call us old school 
at 855-REAL-WEALTH. You can email any of us. We made it real easy. Dan at revereasset.com, Don at revereasset.com, or Michael, Ted, or Connor at revereasset.com. Thanks for tuning in to the early edition of Your Money Radio podcast, and we will talk to you next week on your money. Not the traditional advisor brotherhood's money, your money. If that's what tickles your boat, is that what you said? <laughs> Remember, flush, it's not flush, how much you flush. make in the markets, it's how much of that you can keep. And keep your boats floating. Boats. You keep your boats floating. Your Money Radio podcast covers general topics and investment ideas for research. It is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be investment advice. If you want or need investment advice, contact your own advisors or reach out to Revere Asset Management for individual investment advice. For more information, just go to revereasset.com.